Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Hello. We are on Seho Radio with uh, Mick Hornby, um, a British uh, young sculptor. Uh, Mick, welcome to Seho Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, a great pleasure to have you today. Um, for um, the audience that might not be familiar with your work, mm. um, your sculptures combine three-dimensional um, modeling processes. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. That's the practicals. The practicals, yes. Uh, art historical references. That's the theoreticals. That's the theoreticals. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the visual outcome, uh, I could say, kind of... Um, Take a, a, a Rodin and the Starship Enterprise and put them into a Nutribullet and out comes something which is quite sharp, pointy, figurative-y, spacey, um, nostalgic sci-fi-esque. Is <laughs> okay. that about right? Okay, yeah, you know better to describe <laughs> your work. I was thinking something more of kind of uh, Tony Grug. Uh, no. As a reference, sorry. <laughs> Apologies. That, okay. that was that. Yeah. I have to stop you in your tracks. So um, uh, <laughs> I think I think Tony Craig is an amazing artist, but um, uh, as I understand, mm -hmm. um, his sculptures... Uh, they're more to do with the phenomenology uh, and the experience of recognizing something, mm -hmm. uh, an archetype, or, for example, the notion of a face. Mm -hmm. um, whereas my uh, hybrids, tribrids, they are mixing very, very specific citations. So for me, the pleasure is in the sort of secondary and tertiary associations of the references, rather than Which recognizing um, uh, a nose or a lip. For mm -hmm. me, it's because um, the nose is from a, uh, a 19th century portrait bust of a lawyer um, that's in the V&A, juxtaposed mm -hmm. with um, something else. <laughs> so basically, um, you use visual references mm. and you reinterpret them through your creative process <laughs> you have to come to the studio soon. i have to come um, to the studio soon yeah, that, yeah that's that's yeah. that's a so fact i'm I, I should stop uh interrupting you i mean you're kind of right of course but um i like to think that i'm not doing any interpretation per se because they are objectively cut out um okay. uh, so there's i i the the sort of thesis is that i've eliminated um any of my own authorship and they're mm -hmm. just pure citations that was the plan Okay, and who are um, the people, the artists, or maybe other form of references? It might be something else that you're using as a, as a reference. Right, yeah. Um, so, I've been doing this now for um, a few years, um, and I've barely scratched the surface of this project. It's kind of vast. Um, so, so far I've kind of gone from about 1850 to... Um, I don't know, maybe the sort of 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. uh, 1970s, 80s. So I've, I've sort of dealt with about a 100-year period. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always been art historical. That's. I can imagine you have a big library at the studio. Um, <laughs> you, well, we, yeah, we do, although most of the works come from personal experience. Um, yeah, always, actually. Um, so we start often with um, sort of the height of Victoriana, um, and then deal with the canon. Um, mm -hmm. So the, what happens between Rodin and Brancusi, and then between Brancusi, the war, and Tetworth, and then Calder. Um, art history, it's a funny thing. Uh, I absolutely love it, um, but at the same time recognise that it's a, a rather crass, reductive fairy tale. Um, and I think we're all a bit torn. You know, we know that Picasso was a bit of a monster, he basically seduced very young girls mm -hmm. but at the same time he was a genius so how do i reconcile those two positions i had the exact same <laughs> problem i have sort of especially with picasso and it's right, very interesting right. you're referring to that yeah um okay let's go to to have a break after the picasso <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we will go to to a shitty day <laughs> <laughs> with soko and, and back with uh, nick hornby 
funny music isn't it how um we're both we both work in in visual arts Mm -hmm. i don't know about you but if i want to um if i want to access emotion Mm -hmm. then i go to music um or film sometimes but mainly music and i don't i don't think oh i'm you know i'm desperate to feel some raw emotion i'm gonna uh, nip into the V&A and look at some ceramics um, you know you just you, you... I think the, the impact of the music has more it's more immediate and faster uh, usually than the visual stimuli but at it least shouldn't should it I mean I, I don't know why <laughs> why it functions like that maybe the the vibrations I don't Good know vibrations. depending depending on the vibrations that the music offers and we should be making a case for for Rothko um, <laughs> standing in front of Rothko and weeping um, or, or looking at a piece of Rodin and sort of collapsing into a state of arousal. But <laughs> instead, uh, I turn to shitty day. Um, <laughs> anyway. But you're a musician you're, yourself, Nick. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I, uh, like, I mean, you started like that. Lots or, of people. How I did you decide to go to the Slade uh, uh, from playing the cello? Yeah, Correct? No, I, you're right. Um I played the cello and piano and I sang a lot. Um, I went to a, I was sent to a Catholic choir school, mm-hmm. um, which is a pretty horrific indoctrination. Um, but I played a lot of music. Um, cello's, cello's an amazing instrument. It's, um, it's so figurative. It's sort of the proportions of a, of a, of a body. And what it is, is all of the components have these associations. So um, the strings are quite often animal gut. Um, mm-hmm. And they're stretched across a fingerboard, um, which uh, over a bridge, and then played by um, a, uh, a bow which is made of horsehair. Um, so all these really sort of explicit figurative associations. And I think that the instrument is one of the closest to the human voice, mm-hmm. um, apart from you know woodwind, for example. Um, 
cello. I I played the cello because I I fancied a guy at school, one of my brother's friends, who was a brilliant cellist, and that was the way to get closer to him. <laughs> okay, I mean that that's a very good motivation and a very good, I think an amazing reason to learn uh, to play some music. You know, yeah. it kind of motivates you at the beginning, right. but it kept you going for a while. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And um, along with your, um, in, in your exhibitions, you you used to have performances that you right, were performing. Right. Um, you must have found some old images. Yeah, so actually for my, <laughs> at Slade, my undergraduate show, um, God, much to the, 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 the horror of all my friends, um, I did this performance, which, God, we're going back a long way now. Uh, I did a performance where I played the cello all day, every day the whole duration of the show and there was a, a contact mic on the cello and I wrote a little program um, using Max MSP um, to connect pitch to frame um, and there was a video and the videos were the uh, what they call the NPAC crash test videos um, so the European standard for, for crashes mm -hmm. and um, in the video what you'll see is one of those crash test dummies um, repeatedly driving into a wall um, and I think at the time I was obsessed with the relationship between diegetic and non-diegetic soundtracks in music. Um, uh, and um, I, we're also, this is going back to sort of 1999, so non-linear narrative and interactive narrative was a sort of a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so what I did was I I played, the video played, uh, played one of these crashes and um, I would play the video by doing effectively a sort of scale um, from low to high which would then play out the video. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine like a glissando from the bottom, from a bottom C all the way to a, to a high note. Mm -hmm. um, and what would happen was there would be certain notes which um, would trigger certain narrative moments. So for example, when the head hit the glass, that would be a particular note. And my job during the performance was to uh, learn those key notes by mm -hmm. watching the video. And the process of navigating between and learning those notes created a melody quite an atonal melody but a melody nevertheless mm -hmm. um, and so each track basically had uh, embedded um, a soundtrack mm -hmm. which I learned and then tried to make as emotive as possible to animate mm -hmm. the film um, and it goes from being quite inert to being um, quite sort of sensational dramatic or emotive so the, I see a continuity in this in a continuous link between the visual and uh, in, in the sound right. do you do you visualize music uh sorry yeah do you visit yeah okay so and um your 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 sculptures uh, at the end of the day have uh musical visualizations as well or no, is my no, own well, interpretation I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, love, I love the idea i've kind of um uh i've had to press pause on a sound um just because you um, art's a funny thing, isn't it? You you get, um, in some ways, we are self-employed and therefore do exactly what we want. Um, but the flip side is that we meet amazing people and very occasionally they invite us to do something. Um, and that takes you in a direction because of the dialogue. Um, so yeah, I, I started to play the cello because I fell in love with Harry. Uh, and then maybe at 25, I started working with um, uh, a different form of sculpture because I fell in love with the curator. And I don't necessarily mean a, a boy, it could be a girl um, in, in like an intellectual way. Um, but yeah, in terms of relationship between sound and visuals, um, I think the commonality would be uh, meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we're not so interested in what things do, but what they mean uh, through metaphor. Um, uh, and of course, transformation. It's funny. I was uh, I was thinking on the way here. Um, am I talking too much? No, no. <laughs> that's why you're here. I mean, we're interesting to listen yeah. about you or your work. You're your going to sing later, okay? So long as you no, I'm not to singing. Sing, no, to sing that, that, that's not <laughs> my my job today. Um, I, on the way here, I was thinking about a trip I made to Fire Island last year. Um, it was. I went in order to go and get a bit sunburnt and mm -hmm. uh, see some some beefcakes on the beach. Uh, and my host, um, without warning, um, had some other guests who were sort of quite amazing. And one of them is this um, this chap Thomas Ades, um, who is a heavyweight of the of the music world. Uh, and it, it turns out it was a sort of a, a real musical gang. Um, and my host um, was 
incredibly intelligent, um, brilliant, um, brilliant man um, who plays the, the piano um, and the organ beautifully. Um, and uh, we get we get on very well, we're good friends, um, but he kind of doesn't, he's not at all interested in visual culture, doesn't, does art, not his cup of tea. And I'm always completely fascinated when you come across these people who are bright, um, interested in current affairs and people and humanity, or uh, okay, more to the point, deeply moved by music. Um, so you can see they have this amazing capacity for um, abstraction, mm -hmm. uh, and yet no interest in visual culture. And I spent the whole weekend trying to draw analogies between um, uh, interpreting visual culture and music. Uh, let's go to Handel and then uh, we will continue uh, our conversation on abstraction, <laughs> I think, this time. conceive your works as highly abstract can I, can I can I quickly just say a few things about that song yes of course um, definitely <laughs> it's so Please. not good for my street cred to be playing <laughs> like um, uh, I don't know this type of thing I feel like I should be putting in more Destiny's Child um, but uh, Handel he was quite a dude um, he uh, he was kind of like the, um, the Andrew Lloyd Webber of his day um, and he he lived in Brook Street, um, so he was no, like. I didn't know that. Yeah, hmm. yeah. He he was. Um, uh, he lived in London, um, and he was brought over by by George the First um, from Hanover, uh, hmm. and he composed like hundreds of operas. I think you know, like at least fifty or something, um, and yeah, uh, just an interesting man. Um, uh, the sort of last last fling of Baroque. I put this in because. Um, uh, a dear friend of mine, um, Jamie, James McVinney, who's an organist, um, brilliant, brilliant musician. Uh, a couple of years ago, they did this at Glyndebourne and um, uh, with um, 
in order to sort of uh, deal with changing the staging, they would have these interludes um, and um, Handel himself would quite often be playing the organ. So it was sort of quite a, a mad theatrical moment. And when they staged it at Glyndebourne a few years ago, James was was brought up on the organ from the, the he sort of came up from from the 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 the, the, the belly of, of the, the pit um, in sort of crazy paraphernalia um uh sort of the, the madness of soul and played it anyway so that was why i put it in and but um, you had an exhibition afterwards it's, sorry exactly yes I, in um, 2017 exactly last and year I, um yeah. I, I had a very large there. scale yeah <laughs> not 10 okay i yeah. didn't know the number okay yeah, and you invited me and uh, i didn't i see i only saw the theme i just apologies for not oh you missed a great, great i lunch. missed yes i know yeah. uh, lunch yeah we threw an amazing lunch <laughs> Yeah, Glyndebourne was a fantastic, fantastic opportunity. Um, with with sculpture, you have um, you have white cubes, and you have um, the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, uh, and you have Versailles. Um, you have all these different different traditions and spaces, mm -hmm. um, uh, from minimal to um, a supposed natural to um, more cultivated. Mm -hmm. And Glyndebourne is very very peculiar space it's sort of uh, late jacobean house with a bit of ornamental landscaping and then it has a ha-ha and then it has a field full of animals so you kind of get to have all of those tropes you can plonk something in the field surrounded by sheep and feel like you're in the tradition of henry moore and barbara hetworth mm -hmm. or you can put something in the rose garden uh, and feel like you're in the tradition of something sort of high, highly victorian um so that was That was really did, did you do uh, works, new new works for this? Uh, it, it, was it a commission or yeah, existing exactly. work? Um, so you reflected on on the space. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I had, <laughs> I had to put the show together quite quickly, uh, and it was quite substantial. I mean, for ten um, works, I mean that's a yeah, big body of work, and it, we're exactly. talking about not, not, large scale. Not all of it was new. I bought yeah. over a piece which was commissioned by New York Parks um, called Godbird Drone. Um, and uh, that I bought over from New York. It was just it had been deinstalled, and a couple of other pieces had come from other locations. Um, the real pleasure was uh, trying to work out where they would go. And I went down with Harry with life-size cutouts, um, and um, we had sort of walkie-talkies uh, so that I could sort of say a little bit further back, a little bit further forward. Um, a lot of the the work that I make, um, they look quite different from different angles. Um, mm -hmm. And placement um, is quite important um, because you want to try to. Um, sometimes there are sweet spots. Um, sometimes certain angles obfuscate and look more obscure, and you want to um, not give people the sweet spot immediately. Um, but also, it's quite fun to synchronize different sweet spots. So, at a certain position, you might mm. see several things concurrently. Create um, new dialogues. Exactly. Anyway, it's a great show, uh, very interesting. Rachel Kneebone was there with White Cube, so it was mm -hmm. the two of us. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I developed a new mode of um, direct burnout casting. So mm. the large four-meter piece was a, a, a direct burnout, which was uh, amazing. What is this uh, bird god drone, <laughs> and and why a drone? Is it is it more kind of a, what it, what was the reference there? Right. Um, well, god or the inspiration. And birds. Um, <laughs> Damn it, this is a long story. I'll try and say it as quickly as possible. Um, back in 2012, I was, um, the V&A reached out to me um, and asked me to come and um, put together a proposal for a permanent commission. Mm -hmm. um, and when they called me, I, I fell off my chair because this would be my complete dream gig. Um, it was for the cast courts, which are an ama amazing space um, between sort of about 1850 and 1880, um, at the height of Victorian expansion. Um, Uh, Britain runs off and makes plaster copies of the sort of classical Renaissance canon, um, Michelangelo's and such like, um, and then put them together in this space. And it's the weirdest thing to walk around because you literally have David next to Moses. One is now in Florence and one is in Rome. Um, so it's very surreal for an artist who knows where sort of the current iter the current versions are standing. Um, and it's, um, it's kind of a monstrosity um, because it's... One of the things that the V&A did was, um, uh, sorry, I probably shouldn't say this, but they, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, it's great, should, yeah. it's great, we love the V&A. Um, they, 
they sent out mini versions of the caste courts to the extremities of um, the empire. So in India, they had a mini V&A um, where they um, they used the Italian Renaissance plaster castes to try and indoctrinate the hand of the local craftsman, as if to instill the sort of nuances of um, the S shape of contraposta. Um, right. Anyway, uh, so Did you feel it was kind of cultural was, imper imperialism in a way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a, a challenging space, riddled with um, uh, problems, uh, and uh, but but exquisitely beautiful um, as well. Often the case with with the the canon of art history is it's both beautiful but problematic, um, and they are they asked me to do something because I I'm not I'm that guy that shoves stuff together. I'm the guy that takes citations and makes these new things. So if you're trying to make a single sculpture, a new interpretation of a historic display, then well, hey, get Nick Hornby to do it because he can take multiple things and make something new out of it. Mm -hmm. um, well, I tried that. Uh, I tried it for a long time. I spent six months trying to assemble a single hybrid from some of these things. And it just became completely impossible because the more I sort of fell in love with the space and, and the different nuances and peculiarities of each work, the more I realised that there were... It, it's the the historicity of the space the history of histories was just so complex that everything i did was crass mm -hmm. uh, so in the end um i sort of jettisoned the whole lot and just turned to the the dynamics of the space and the commission was supposed to, to stand in this reclaimed outside space which had a glass roof and it was 14 meters tall and quite narrow with a ramp for for access for for disabled people um and they also opened up one of the grand arches um, to make that into the front entrance. So what you have was this weird tall space with a, a glass roof and two vantage points, one um, from walking up the ramp and the other through this magnificent um, gateway. And so I thought that my job was to engage more abstractly with um, uh, that particular point in history uh, of, of enlightenment. So. Mm -hmm. I took the single most famous sculpture in the world, um, Michelangelo's David, which is kind of the like the apotheosis of human perfectibility. Um, True. And um, no, uh, every single detail. Every yeah, single detail. Yeah. The veins of on the, the hands. Human, yeah. Um, um, yeah, he's got a great body, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> and um, a big head and sort of weird limbs. Um, very fetishistic. Anyway, I I'm quite interested in the idea of category error, and I was wondering how could you pit um, figurative perfection with something else. Uh, so I was thinking about geometry and uh, a, t a different type of perfection. So, uh, in a nutshell, the idea was to extrude the the perimeter of David down to a single point, um, uh, which is kind of producing like a perspectival cone. Um, and perspective. sounds like the Big Bang, <laughs> right? Of ideas, the the, the focus point, and exactly. then expands and accelerates. Exactly. So it's kind of like supposed to be the embodiment of um, the pre the pre postmodern notion of the world that we are in the center of the universe uh, we are in control um and uh i then was to suspend it it was mm -hmm. going to be 12 meters um from the ceiling so you would see from a distance this vertical spike um and the the edges would look a bit like fabric folds mm -hmm. um and hopefully because it was going to be quite a sort of terrifying and sort of sublime object um you'd be encouraged to like walk underneath it and look up uh, at which point you would see the outline of David and it would reveal its source and therefore break down the question of authorship and become a more sort of pluralistic mm -hmm. object. Um, anyway, long story short, I didn't get the gig. Um, <laughs> it went to a better artist, but it was a fantastic um, thing to research. And I wanted to make a different version, and this one I made I think for... better proposal, not better artist. I mean, we don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> a nicer artist. I don't know. Anyway, it's cool. It's always, you know, commissions, they always go to different people. That's fine. Um, you win some, you lose some. But I, uh, I later, New York Parks offered me to make a piece, and this was the perfect opportunity to realise it. But I did it standing the other way up. Um, and at this point, it was pointing up to God. Uh, and this was in 2013, and drones and surveillance were... Yeah, that was the next question. So how is it linked or not <laughs> to the surveillance systems and... Uh... Right, well, I, I mean, to be crass and overly simplify, as I understand, the history of art is... Uh, we start with caves, we then incrementally create naturalism perspective, which sort of comes to a point um, before modernism, uh, and then modernism breaks it down and postmodernism makes it sort of multi-perspective. Um, and so uh, the idea of um, 
single point perspective I kind of find fascinating uh, it's to do with baggage as well I don't know about you but um, I'm constantly struggling with the, the limitations of our own perspective um, you know you are you are a Greek lady I'm a British <laughs> man uh, I can only really see the world from my own vantage point which is very limiting um, yeah and mine changes completely uh, day, <laughs> every day <laughs> so yes yeah, a quite problematic situation anyway, let's yes. go to Next Sebastian Schuller and Weeping Willow yeah it's quite sad this one This was a very melancholic uh, song. Yeah. Why did you choose it? Uh, I'm actually not going to tell you. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, it's very private, but it's a great song. Uh, and um, uh, it was something you wished to listen today. Yeah, I listened to it a lot when I was in um, in New York. I did a residency at a place called I Beam, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, this song takes me right back to. Williamsburg <laughs> before it became Williamsburg <laughs> you have quite a few residences in yeah. your uh, in your background history mm. Mm. Um, yeah I'm a bachelor with outset and I, I noticed that two of them in legal firms right. how, how is right. this happening I mean <laughs> how, how does this work hey you take what you get <laughs> um, no uh, well the first one was at Clifford Chance Mm-hmm. Um, 2008 exactly mm-hmm. and that was the University of the Arts London Sculpture Prize um, ah, okay. which is really cool yeah I, mm-hmm. I graduated um, and that was fantastic because um, 
I think I think I'd, I, was, I was a waiter at the time and I'd saved up like 500 quid to put on my MA show. Uh, I was really proud that I'd saved that sum of money. Um, uh, but otherwise, like penniless. Mm. And um, I got three grand from Clifford Chance, um, which was amazing. It enabled me to realise a, a new body of work for that show. Uh, and then fantastically, this sort of fat, hotshot lawyer sat on one of my sculptures <laughs> and broke it. Um, and so I got another that's three fantastic. grand. Oh, that's why oh, it's it fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, it was here from Clifford Chance, this the was lawyer. Clifford Chance, yes, yes. Okay, yes. so they compensated. Broke you. my sculpture. Yeah. Uh, no, it was it's a great law firm, uh, global, and in fact it was fun because this was this was six months after I graduated. We put this show up, and at the time, um, uh, every now and then, I would get a phone call from this lady, um, and she was Nick Hornby, the writer's PR, saying, <laughs> "What the hell are you doing, trying to pretend that Nick Hornby is coming to one of your events?" Um, and you know this went on for a while I got invitations to go to book launches in Zurich and all sorts of weird things and people whenever I'd arrive at something they would look at me and go oh are you <laughs> the author or oh, oh, like, you're clearly the clearly disappointed that uh, <laughs> I was just this like I will never kid. be disappointed <laughs> to see you Nick I mean I have to be sincere <laughs> anyway long story short I, I thought well look we just have to attack this head on so when Clifford Chance asked me to give a talk I thought well look I've never given a talk before I'll get nervous. I won't know what to say. Why don't I get someone better? Uh, and the obvious person was Nick Hornby, the writer. Uh, so I, <laughs> I reached out to him and I said, uh, hi, uh, I'm Nick Hornby. And he goes, right. Uh, and uh, I, I I started incrementally. So I said, look, Nick, would you do me an enormous favour? Is there any chance that I could persuade you just to give me a quote for my catalogue? And he was like, OK, fine, here you go. Um, and then uh, a couple of days later, I waited a couple of days and I called him up again and said, Nick, that's fantastic. Listen, uh, I was just wondering, you know, that's so kind of you. Is there any chance if I, if I like maybe in exchange for a drawing or something, you might write a little sort of essay? Um, and this went on and on. And then after a few days, I was like, Nick, will you come and do my talk for me? Um, <laughs> and after a few drinks, he, he agreed. So we had this really fun conversation, Nick Hornby and Nick Hornby on the top floor, the 33rd floor of Clifford Chance. Um, did you discuss on authorship? <laughs> we did, literally. I remember uh, I found it fascinating because... Uh, there were so many similarities in terms of our, our sort of dealing with with how to get into the zone. Uh, Nick, for example, uh, would spend hours in the morning playing sort of computer games and then suddenly hit a point and, and start writing. Um, and I remember asking him questions like, for example, he had just written a book, Long Way Down, where these four people, by complete coincidence, end up on the top of Topper's Tower and the Millennium, all trying to commit suicide at the same time on the same night. Uh, it's okay. a very entertaining um, uh, uh, scenario. And I remember asking him what comes first, the plot um, or the character? Um, because in sculpture, in art, you have that sort of classic trialogue between um, concept, um, subject uh, and realisation. Um, that The marriage between form, form, and, form and content, how they come together. Do you start with a process or do you start with an idea? Um, normally they sort of float around and without you knowing find a perfect marriage but sometimes you can sit down for a long time with a great idea um, but also have a preoccupation with a particular method uh, and sort of shove them together anyway so it was a fascinating conversation and the most recent one Pins at Mason uh, uh, they're fantastic um, I'm the Austin residence for the next 12 months I'm going there after this um, this interview okay. uh, this conversation um, and uh, the law, I mean, art. So what are you going to do for six months? They they give you an amount of uh, money to produce new yes, work? Yes, they've been very generous. Okay. Um, and uh, honestly, I, I don't know yet. Uh, I came in sort of with a whole load of... Um, uh, I sort of bulldozed in with a whole load of ideas. And um, I said, look, before I start, can I just spend a bit of time doing what I call like a sit-in? Um, just sort of get a sense of the space. And um, uh, I spent a day working in their canteen, just on my laptop surreptitiously. And uh, I realised that I, I, I felt very humbled, actually, um, because these are brilliant, intelligent people who are working frenetically hard um, and just trying to snatch five-minute break at their lunch before going back to some sort of hellish document they have to produce. Uh, and, yeah, I, I came in with this idea, oh, I want to shake things up and cause a bit of mayhem and be artist-rebel. Um uh, and I realised that that was just really obnoxious. Um, 
So, yeah, I, originally I wanted to... But you couldn't distract them for a while, I think. I, I hope so, but it, I, yeah, originally I wanted to cause mayhem. And yeah. I don't think that's the appropriate way to deal with it. I think putting art in the workplace is a fascinating and interesting thing to do. I've done it a few times now. Um, I don't quite know what the answer is, but it's definitely not to... You don't want to mess with them. Um, maybe challenge and provoke, but... Anyway, watch this space. I'll see what I do. Okay, looking forward. And now you have on... Um, I mean, combining... The topic of authorship we, we briefly mentioned. Right. And uh, your recent uh, exhibition and collaborations, apart from Nick Hornby with <laughs> Nick Hornby, um, uh, you have an ongoing collaboration with... Um, Sinta. Sinta Tantra, yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Uh, who is a painter. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is that it's not that you just collaborate and each one of you is doing their own thing somehow mm. And, mm. or you create a different product by, mm. as an outcome of this collaboration mm. but you create one object yeah. so it's it's yeah. completely the authorship there is yeah. completely shared yeah. and completely equal so how yeah. this uh, you had one show i think one collaboration started in 2012 then 15 and yeah. now now yeah and next year in korea Okay, yeah. so how this collaboration started and developed, and I mean, we know about artists with big <laughs> egos, you know, and uh, I know how difficult it is to, to find balance uh, when creating with someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how, how is that working? Well, I mean, it's... Sorry, I'm bombarded with more than 10 absolute, questions. It's, <laughs> such, it's such a fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the best thing. You know... Um, our life can be quite difficult and stressful and this collaboration is social and and really inspiring um god where do i begin um where did you meet we met at the slade okay and we weren't friends you were we, not we, you didn't like one another well it wasn't that we didn't like each other <laughs> but the slade is a um a vertical art school not horizontal so um rather than being divided by year we're divided by discipline so you're in the sculpture department or the painting department. And Cinta was in the painting department and I was in fine art media and sculpture. Um, so uh, it was fantastic in that regard because I was sort of, I was sat next to, um, uh, I had like Comrade Chalkross on one side and Lally um, Spartacus on the, on the other. And, and, you know, fourth years who were, were brilliant artists um, now sort of running Herald Street or whatever. Um, but the, the, the flip side was that the, the conversations were often more about your particular um, mode of working. Anyway, so I didn't know Cinta then, and um, we actually reconnected in our late twenties. Um, she went straight off the Royal Academy, and I took time out um, for a few years, and uh, we reconnected after I'd done my masters. Um, mainly, we started doing some group shows together, um, sort of co-curating some projects, mm. and a lot of my artist friends were really flaky, which was incredibly aggravating because it's if you're trying to like have your own practice and then put on exhibitions when people don't deliver it's mm -hmm. very frustrating mm -hmm. um because you're i know exactly <laughs> the curator believe me i know exactly what that means and you yeah. end up the thing which because you... you cannot deliver at the end of the day exactly yes. and we're all like you know clutching at straws to pull these things off um so the thing which i really really admired was that uh, she was incredibly professional um and would reliable. always reliable um and so that's why we started working together and you probably uh, gathered that I like to deconstruct processes and um, analyze things. Um, so, um, with a lot of collaborations, I know like Gilbert and George, the Wilson sisters. Um, uh, what you have is when you when you look at the final product, you can't decipher the individual voices. Um, and when Cynthia and I started having a conversation about maybe doing something together, I thought it'd be really interesting to have a collaboration where. Um, you have this object at the end which is sort of on that knife edge between raw and cooked where on the one hand um, uh, it's hermetically sealed and makes sense as an artwork but on the other hand you're sort of conscious of these two quite distinct authors um, so in our case uh, the sort of conceit is that you take a, a white sculpture and you wrap it in a center image in truth we actually co-author most of the components so uh, the 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 images that we put around the outside of these things we um come out of a a dialogue we we, we co-author each mark and each line so 
let me visualize it. Uh, your works are mainly white or black, or yeah. they have the color of the material you're using. Yeah. And uh, Sinta adds in the sculptural uh, object uh, the color combinations and patterns that she's using in her practice. Exactly. So. Um, so you both have a dis retain the distinctive element, yes. but at the same time have one same object. Yeah, and I guess also our practices are quite focused in sort of in, in the languages that we're trying to explore, mm -hmm. um, which means that uh, our two voices are, are sort of really easy to distinguish. Um, but as we've when we first started, it was it was kind of amusing because we literally couldn't communicate. We went to the same art school, and somehow I think subconsciously. Um, had a very similar approach to how you balance out equations. Um, but when we tried to uh, discuss practically making these things together, I don't know anything about painting and colour, and she doesn't know anything about sculpture. And um, she, all the references she made, uh, I didn't get. So incrementally, we had to discover a, 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 new, a new language. Um, so we now have shorthand, and we'll say, OK, look, the solution to this will be to snail it. Uh, in that case, it's like the reference to the Matisse, um, which is about having a, a floating component which doesn't touch any of the edges. Um, and we have to have a different a different word for um, turning around a corner or a projection, um, uh, for example. It's it's really interesting. <laughs> Did Nick Hornby, the author, help you in that? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Nick is, is now far too busy um, with his being globally successful. Um, so let, let's go. I, I see that you have uh, the materials that you use. Mm. Um, you have um, synthetic marble, for instance. Right. Does it help, I mean, in terms of production with um, to fuse the colors? Mm. So you, you tint the resin and then you create the combinations? I don't know. Yeah, no. Um, so actually, we don't know. We literally paint on top of uh, the final object. The, 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 the synthetic marble resin. Okay. And that's because Sinta uses, um, quite often she'll use 18th century pharaoh and bull paint. Um, so the, the show that's up at the moment, the bulk of the work are colours like arsenic or Hague blues. They're, they're very sort of particular. Um, and uh, they're, they're handmade. Uh, the, the, the paintings are hand applied. Uh, well, obviously sprayed, but mm -hmm. hand applied because... Um, we tend to build up one colour at a time. So we take a white object and we make the first decision, which is um, a shape and a colour, and we spray it. We have to mask off the other area. Mm -hmm. And then we have to wait two days for that to dry. And then we take off all the masking and it reveals this first gesture. And it's quite dramatic to take, for example, a white sculpture and cut it in half with a dark blue. Um, and then we do the next layer, which might be um, a bubblegum pink. Uh, and we have to mask off the whole thing and we choose our, our, our sort of design and we apply it. Um, so if a, if a sculpture has seven colours, it'll take two weeks. And we often change our mind because it's very difficult to predict how these things will. It's really compound because you have the art historical references of the original sculpture. Then you have the associations of the colour and then you have the, how they operate graphically and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it seems more complicated <laughs> than it, uh, the first impression. Um, and one more thing, Nick, uh, before go before we go to the next track. Um, do you also use marble? So having right. art history references and going back yeah. to the past and all this, do you use marble as such or yeah. do you use uh, alternative uh, materials? Right. So, yeah, you used the word synthetic earlier. Um, in my sort of rather slapdash approach to, to, to theory, I was always quite interested in what I understood of being the Hegelian dialectic, um, where, as I vaguely understand, you have a thesis and antithesis, and the solution isn't slap bang in the middle. It's not to compromise, but it's this third thing, this synthetic thing. Um, new thesis. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and you know, I think a lot about um, binaries and trying to find solutions uh, and I just I found it I found that a fantastic idea to have something the idea of something new and because all of my work is about um, um, uh, on the one hand citation and on the other hand um, the, the the question of whether something new is being produced from these compound quotes it seemed to make more sense to have a synthetic material um, so it's 50% ground marble from Pietrasanta 
and then 50% nautical resin. Mm. Um, so that's the resin they use to make boats. Um, and that's kind of because um, that early 20th century obsession with speed and ergonomics and aerodynamics, you know, um, versus this, the history of these um, ancient stones. So, um, yeah, I, I blitz it in a food processor and cast with it. Unfortunately, out of time. Uh, why are excited vexations? Oh man! Um, really fast. Yeah, uh, vexations. It's I guess a bit of a cliche, isn't it? Uh, the reason I like it is because I discovered. I always think of Sarti as being like the epitome of French. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have these like sort of cliched ideas about identity. It turns out he's actually Scottish, um, and he only moved to France when he was four. Um, so that I found interesting. And I had the same impression myself, yeah. Right, yeah. Thank, it's funny, thanks isn't for it? resolving yeah. that. <laughs> uh, and as I understand this track, he didn't. I mean, it's stunningly beautiful. Um, I don't think he released it in his own lifetime. It, it was Cage who brought it out in like the 50s or something, mm -hmm. um, John Cage. And um, as I understand, he, Sarti wrote this piece in sort of reaction, uh, a sort of like parody of, 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 of Wagner. Um, it was his way of sort of dealing with his competition. Um, and yet, out of that parody has come something which I think is completely exquisite. And it reminds me when I was a kid, um, my singing teacher said, I said, like, I said to him, like, I don't know how to sing. And he goes, well, can you like pretend to be an opera singer? And I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. That's funny. And I did that. And he goes, well, well there it is. That's singing. And this sort of idea of um, fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of performativity. So, uh, and yeah, sometimes. Um... Do you fake it in your sculpture? <laughs> Yeah, they're it? hollow. I mean, the synthetic marble sculptures are hollow, so uh, they are, um, they fade, melt into thin air. Um, yeah, Cloud-capped towers, definitely. Mm. Um, Nick Hornby, what do you have next where we can see your work? Ah. Um, what you, do you have on at the moment? Yeah, so the moment we have the there's work in Pins and Masons in uh, the law the law firm in East London. Currently, it's permanently on display in the lobby for the next twelve months, and mm -hmm. it's going to be at the moment. I've got a, a quite a big sculpture there, but I'm going to be curating some little group shows as well. So is it accessible? Yeah, absolutely, open to the public. Mm -hmm. um, the British Land Show is up um, until the end of the month. And that's been up for about six months. There are, I think, about 27 pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a piece at the Garden Museum that was newly installed. Who is we? Oh, uh, <laughs> I have a piece. Cheeky. Yeah. I have a piece at the Garden Museum. Uh, I say we, my collaborators. In this case, the Garden Museum piece is, is uh, derived from a Matisse cutout. So 
um, it's not me. I've just appropriated this other thing. And yeah, I'm asking because we, you have said many times we, right. and I wasn't sure where you're referring. Well, to. all my sculptures have, in the main, somewhere between two and seven different artists combined. So mm -hmm. um, those things. Uh, and then we've got um, upcoming. Um, got a group show at Frestonian coming up, which can be quite mm -hmm. fun. This gallery mm -hmm. in West London. You had a few months ago. No, there's another one coming up in June. Okay, mm -hmm. that'll be cool. Um, Is a group show. Group yeah. show. Uh, next year we've got the show with Sinter in Korea with Choi Lager, mm -hmm. uh, a really cool gallery. Um, and then, um, crap, I can't think. Oh, there's a big sculpture going to Harlow, uh, 5.2 meters. Oh, um, wow, that sounds really in big. January. That's not easy to make. Yes, yeah, sound, sounds stuff. a technical challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and about your curated projects, Nick? Uh, what do you have in mind or what are you planning? Um, is I, something ready or it's something... No, no, it's not ready yet. Something that sort of deals with the idea of judgment, critique and value. Oof. I mean, <laughs> it's a law the, firm uh, and this is visual culture. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are the, big, the, the biggest uh, challenges, especially the value. Right. Uh, and that, we're not talking about the price. I mean, no, uh, how no. is this conceptualized and what is yeah. valuable and what is not? Yeah, yeah. Nick Corbett was really valuable. Oh, it's been such a pleasure chatting. And more than valuable to but have you. But you said you would sing for me. <laughs> no, you said I'm going to sing you. For haven't you haven't yet sung. Uh, uh, afterwards. Uh, I will sing for you when you curate the show. Okay. Promise. Deal. Deal. I'll hold you to that. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. And I know you have a very busy schedule and many things coming on. Uh, it was great to have you in the studio, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, have a lovely day.